Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists and food makers, farmers, authors and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good weekend to you food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio and a very happy spring to you. I hope that the weather in your neighborhood has made a change for the better. We're celebrating the onset of sun with the birds chirping and flowers blooming and, oh, I love the spring season. This is your culinary culture and lifestyle show that celebrates food and wine, health and tech, travel and all things delicious. For 20 years now, I have said this is a place for people who love to cook or love to eat. And it doesn't matter whether you're one or both. I like to say we can definitely be friends. And I thank you for listening for all these years. It is my absolute passion and joy and delight to be able to share my weekends with you and yours with me as we celebrate fabulous food. So on this show, I keep you up to date on the food scene. We take deep explorations of a broad range of culinary topics. We talk to celebrity chefs and artisans, farmers and winemakers. And I say, set your culinary sights higher because just by staying tuned, you might learn something, you know. I'm sharing inspired recipes that are worthy of a spring celebration, dressing your table, giving you a reason to overeat all the good things. And I'm always serving up seconds, by the way, at chefjamie.com and on social media with my daily dish, often shameless and triple chocolate overloaded at Chef Jamie Gwen on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where I hope you'll become a friend and follow. Now, I like to kick off this show with a tutorial of sorts, one that makes you the best cook you know, and you want to make a better pork chop, right? I mean, who doesn't? Well, do you butter baste? Because I butter baste chicken breasts in a pan on top of the stove and lobster and my favorite steak too. And interestingly enough, of all the culinary questions and queries that I get, and by the way, you're welcome to email me anytime so we can dish. I answer all of my email directly. It's jamie, J-A-M-I-E at chefjamie.com. Once again, write to me, jamie at chefjamie.com. Of all the questions I get, you would be amazed how many pork chop focused queries there are. (laughs) So even though pork chops are a weeknight staple, I think they're intimidating because the moment you make dry or gray pork chops one time, you refrain from the pork chop fantasy of dinner again. And we know that color is flavor, right? And butter is flavor. And I think everything is better with the three Bs. You've heard me say it before, butter, bacon, and beer. There is a beauty to butter-basted pork chops that makes them foolproof delicious. The brown butter bathes the meat with flavor, carries heat into every nook and crevice of the pork chop in this instance. And so you ask, how does one butter baste? Well, once the meat has been seared, and in the case of a pork chop, it's cooked about halfway through at this point, depending upon the thickness, you add butter, unsalted in my opinion, to the pan, along with whatever aromatics you're using, like 
unpeeled cloves of garlic, uh, sturdy herbs like thyme and sage and rosemary, a mix thereof or choose one. And when the butter has melted and starts to foam, you tilt the pan towards you so that it pools up at the end of the pan, right on one side. And this helps you spoon up that butter. You use a long-handled spoon to quickly and repeatedly spoon up that foamy butter to pour it back over the meat. And the butter eventually finishes foaming and it gradually begins to brown. And you stop basting before the butter starts smoking, of course. Now, this is done with thinner cuts of protein, right? You wouldn't usually do this with a double cut pork chop, although you can transition to the oven, but that's a later conversation. The idea of butter basting is that you are constantly enrobing this protein with this beautifully browning butter, which not only continues to cook it evenly, but gives you a crust and increased flavor that is out of this world. Now, For the pork chops, you want a bone-in cut. I believe the bone makes everything taste better. Ask any chef. And about one inch thick chops are perfect because you can still cook them completely on top of the stove. And as far as which type of pan you should cook your chops in, uh, I believe that cast iron is the way to go. You get an incredible sear and great heat conduction. But if you don't have a cast iron pan, use the heaviest saute pan that you have. And with butter basting, the pork takes on the fragrance of the herbs that you've added and that nutty flavor of browning butter. And don't forget, by the way, please think pink. Don't be afraid if the center of your pork chop is pink. It should be. You cook the pork chops to 140 degrees Fahrenheit, and then you let them rest to carry over, as we call it, the carryover cooking to 145 degrees, which is perfect rosy medium doneness. And you will have made the most luscious, tender, beautiful pork chops ever. Now, I want to know how your butter-basted pork chops turn out. So please email me, jamie at chefjamie.com. Okay, time for food news this week. This is some serious news you can use. Well, at least in my book. I'm jumping from pork to burgers. You're with me, right? So we're friends, you and I, but we don't really know each other that well. You're a loyal listener. I very much appreciate that. I like to consider every food lover a friend. But I have secrets. I do. I love a churro. But I've said that on the radio before. I eat a happy meal. I know. A professional French-trained celebrity chef eats a happy meal? Yes, I do. Every year on my birthday. I seldom miss it. And I love it. But more than that, and... You heard it here. I love White Castle. My mom and I stop there on the way to JFK, flying home from New York on every trip. I live on the opposite coast. I get my fill and I'm proud of it. But there is White Castle news that will make me plan a trip, book an airline ticket. (laughs) A big part of White Castle's appeal is no doubt the simplicity of the burger, right? Thin, tiny slider, beef, bun, onions, and a pickle. And you can eat them by the sack full. There's never any left. But it's not to say that the chain has shied away from innovation because White Castle was actually the first major chain to launch Impossible Burger, if you didn't know. 
Their latest new product, though, is where the food news lies. They are taking a step forward by taking a look back because they are celebrating 100 years. And they named it the 1921 Slider after the year the chain was launched. And it is being touted as White Castle's most significant product innovation since adding a slice of cheese in 1962. It's a new burger. It's a beef patty that is thicker and rounder, similar to like a smashed meatball that inspired their brand's first patties. They actually switched to a square patty in 1954. Oh, such a bevy of White Castle knowledge. But this new burger, the 1921, it comes topped with cheddar cheese, caramelized onions, pickles, and oh my, a slice of Roma tomato. Yes, this is a slider with all the fixins. White Castle is also adding a new menu item in their drink category to celebrate 100 years. It's Coca-Cola cream soda. Oh, and my mom can't wait to taste that. It's actually, um, interestingly enough, a theme here because Coca-Cola was the only drink on the menu when the chain first opened 100 years ago. And they say that data from their machines say that that their audience, they're cream soda lovers. So why wouldn't you, right? Now, since I live pretty far away from a White Castle, if you are in close proximity, please, please eat for me. Okay? And that is some food news you can use. All right. Time to elevate your food knowledge. Coming up, our resident produce guru is here. Robert Schuler from Melissa's is stopping by to highlight the best of the spring season. And Reem Cassis, the award-winning Palestinian writer whose work focuses on the intersection of food with culture, history, and politics, is here to dish. There is so much more in your radio when we come back. Stay tuned. Chef Jamie Gwen here. Time to eat. entertaining and delicious conversation abounds. Welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. There is a newly released, absolutely stunning and so full of passion cookbook from a Palestinian writer whose work focuses on the intersection of food and culture, history and politics. And I am so delighted to share it with you. I will tell you, there is so much beauty in revealing a cuisine that is vibrant and exciting, but reminds us of how powerful food is in defining a relationship between people, place, and identity. Her new hit cookbook 
is entitled The Arabesque Table. It is inspiration from the traditional food of the Arab world, where Reem weaves in her historical research and her cultural knowledge, and it is absolutely beautiful. The vibrant, fabulous, vivid photography will inspire you to cook Arab dishes if you haven't before, or to master those that you love or those that you grew up with. It's a compilation of modern Arabic recipes celebrating the evolution of Arab cuisine. And I am so delighted to share these contemporary recipes from the Arab world from the new book entitled The Arabesque Table. The author, Reem Cassis, joins us live. I'm so glad to have you, Reem. Congratulations. What a stunning work of art. Thank you so much, Jamie. Yeah. It's an honor for me to be here with well, you. Thank you kindly. Well, well deserved. Um, I would love to get to know you better. Um, you grew up in a very food-loving family, did you not? I know my listeners would love to know uh, how your love of food has been inspired. You're right. I did grow up uh, <laughs> between three tables, and those were my mother's and my two grandmothers, and in every one of those kitchens, I felt a sense of love around food and a sense of passion for what they were doing. Mm-hmm. With that said, those three tables were very different. Of my course. paternal grandmother is from northern Palestine, where the cuisine is similar to Lebanese meze dishes. Mm-hmm. Uh, my maternal grandmother is more from the center of the country, where the food is large rice dishes served on massive platters that feed very generous crowds. And my table at home, my mother's table, was in Jerusalem, which was an amalgamation of those two tables, as well as the different experiences we had growing up in a city, traveling throughout our childhood as well. So Mm. I felt a sense of love woven through all these three tables in spite of how different they might have been. Right. But what a wonderful history lesson to be able to experience those different places, right? Like I I really believe food transports us. So the stories and the memories from your grandmothers, both of their tables and to Mm -hmm. your mothers and then how your table has evolved. What, what does your table with your daughters look like today? It's quite different from the way my childhood tables looked like. And I think in part, that has to do with the fact that we no longer live back home mm-hmm. and the ingredients I have access to, the cultures that my daughters are exposed to are quite different. Mm-hmm. So it's not unusual for you to find on my table a very rustic, traditional Palestinian dish alongside my oldest daughter's favorite meal, which is sushi. So you see a mismatch <laughs> of things. I love it. <laughs> Both within my pantry, in my fridge, on our table. And that was the initial inspiration, actually, for the book that we're discussing today. It was this attempt to capture this cross-cultural table, if you will. Of course. But when I started working on it, I realized if I want that proverbial table to stand on firm legs, then I really have to dig into the history and understand this entire process of evolution. Yes. And so with that said, talk about, if you would, share with us, enlighten us to the history of Arab cuisine. It's a vast and deep history, Jamie. So if you go back, the very first recipes on record ever are stone tablets from Mesopotamia, Mm. uh, which is present day Iraq. There's a 4th century Roman cookbook, but it's a period of silence after that until the Middle Ages, at which point Arabs are the only people writing cookbooks. 
And in my book, I trace our food and our history back to the Middle Ages, to those original cookbooks. And you start to see just how influential food is, but also how influential Arab food has been on the cuisine of the entire world. Yes. And that was in large part because of how expansive the empire was at its height. It reached everywhere from Western Europe to China. And, you know, we can get into specific examples, but you see just how far the cuisine traveled and particularly ingredients. I'm not just talking about dishes and techniques. I'm talking about things like tomatoes, which didn't even feature in Arab cuisine in those books I'm referencing. Tomatoes mm-hmm. didn't make their way to our part of the world until the 19th century. So once you dig far back, you see things from a very different perspective. Of course. I think that's fascinating to to go back and look and see the influence. And then I think what is so brilliant today, you talk about ingredients, is that those flavors have infiltrated the common pantry, right? And so mm-hmm. we know that in, you know, a traditional American dish, you can use za'atar to elevate the flavor ab- ab- above the beauty of a lemon, right? So those right. ingredients that you use that I see highlighted, I've read the book cover to cover, it's beautiful, uh, in the Thank arabesque you. table. I go to my spice cabinet or my pantry and I think, oh, I, I have to make bulgur, right? I'm missing that texture, that flavor. Um, can we talk mm-hmm. ingredients for a minute? I'll tell you, I, I love the ingredient listing in the beginning of the book because it really highlights the staples that, you're, that are your go-tos. So za'atar, tahini, bulgur, and sumac. Those are my top four. Hmm, interesting. Yes. So za'atar is, let's start with that because this is one that often has confusion around it. Za'atar is a plant native to the Levant region, which is Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, Palestine. Mm-hmm. And it's from the oregano family. But the confusion results because people think it's just the condiment that is now more familiar abroad. And they associate it with thyme because that's often on the ingredient list. But za'atar itself is very different from thyme. It's much more closely related to the oregano plant. Um, so it's, it's a condiment, but we also use the leaves. We use them fresh. We use them dried. We use them in pastries. We use them in teas. It's a very versatile herb. The book is uh, absolutely so deeply rooted with passion and talent, and I can feel your heart poured onto the pages. So congratulations and kudos to you. Another really beautiful honoring of your roots and a celebration of recipes that you have generously shared. And so we thank you. This is a one of a kind collection of contemporary recipes tracing the rich history of Arab cuisine. Please don't miss it. Uh, Get your copy and just throw yourself into it because I cannot wait to cook from the arabesque table available on Amazon now just released. Of course, you should follow Reem's uh, daily culinary escapades on social. You'll find her at reem.cassis, R-E-E-M dot K-A-S-S-I-S. There is lots more fabulous food in your radio. We do have great culinary thinkers here, don't you think? Reem, such a pleasure. Come back soon, please, and stay well. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you, you, thank you. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Be right back.
prepare yourself. We're about to get fresh. Welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. After a long winter, there is nothing more welcoming than the sight of spring's first vegetables. The crisp lettuces and the earthy morels, the slender spears of asparagus, the leafy spring onions, the fresh peas, the piles of bright rhubarb, and oh, the sweet succulent fruit. In our continuing series of comprehensive seasonal produce insight, we're about to share the best of spring's bounty. So when you think tasty, tangy, tart, sweet, and delicious, you think Melissa's Produce, providing quality produce to chefs and restaurateurs and grocery stores for over 40 years now. What an extraordinary history of a family-run company that is truly bringing the best to the table. I am very proud and grateful to have Melissa's as a partner of this show since my inception 20 years ago, and their products just keep getting sweeter. Robert Schuler is our resident produce guru on the show and the director of all things fresh and delicious for Melissa's Produce, and he is here to increase your fruit and veggie knowledge, and I'm always glad to have you back. Hi, Robert. Hey, Jamie. Thank you for having (laughs) me back this spring season. Yes, of course. We are celebrating, right? Because it does feel like a long, cold winter, and I love when all of the, I call it the aromatics, because I do feel like spring is so full of that beautiful, fresh nose of everything. And so it's a great time to talk about, uh, in fact, we should kick it off with Ojai Pixie Tangerines, right? Yes, definitely. It's one of our signature items. This is a late season tangerine that's grown out of Ojai, California, and boy, they are delicious. Mm. We're in the peak of the season, and typically the season goes until about late May, early June, and it's been a delicious season. They're easy to peel, they're seedless, but what makes them so uh, delicious is the sweet juice. I mean, most people say like they taste like candy. Yes. They're so good. Yeah, they do. I I will say they are the sweetest to me. And every season just keeps getting better. And um, Jagger, my son, um, as you know, is thoroughly addicted because he can peel them himself. They really are an easy peel. And then I find not only are they scrumptious out of hand, but now I'm finishing desserts with them. Like I made cannoli cream and just a few of the segments of the Ojai Pixie Tangerine on top, or if you were to put that filling into a tart crust and then in a circular fashion, create Ojai Pixie Tangerine wedges all the way around, wouldn't that be beautiful? This is what I call a fruit tart fruit because it's just beautiful to showcase. Um, Okay, moving on. Tree-ripened mangoes. You are always singing their praises. And you know we're a mango-loving family. Yes. You know, the tree-ripened mango is a little different than your regular typical mango you'll find in the store year-round. The tree-ripened mangoes are only available in the spring and early summer months. These are varieties that are vine-picked and distributed throughout the United States. Traditionally, a regular mango is picked really early before it's vine sweetened because it has to go through a hot water treatment before it gets imported into the United States because most mangoes are imported. However, these particular varieties that grow uh, not only in California, but they grow along the border in an area that is certified that they they can, in fact, stay on the vine, don't have to be hot water treated 
to be distributed throughout the rest of the United States. So what you're going to have is a really sweet-tasting mango. It's fiberless, easy to cut, and just most delicious to enjoy. As you know, Jamie, the mango is the number one fruit in the world, just Mm. not here in the United States yet. I know. Isn't that interesting? I, I think it's fruit of the gods. And I'll tell you, the tree-ripened mangoes are my favorite because they are so close to fiberless. That velvety texture, Robert, cannot be beat. So you always generously send me some, and I will cut them into cubes in the traditional way where you cut off the sides of the mango, score it, turn it inside out, and cube it. And then I IQF freeze them. So individually quick frozen on a sheet pan. And then I put all my mango chunks into the freezer in a zipper bag so that I can savor the season. And whether it goes onto a a fruit plate or a fruit platter or onto a cheese board or if I blend it in the morning for my smoothie or my protein drink, that has to be one of the best tasting, best textured mangoes you will ever eat. I think they're out of this world. So I'm definitely delighted it's spring season. Ah, Robert, I've been meaning to tell you those early season kumquats. I made preserves. Uh, I, I used the entire kumquat. It has this extraordinary texture And I have to tell you, the flavor is out of this world. Kumquats are in season right now, yes? Yes, definitely. As we get into the spring and early summer months, uh, it it, it is the peak of the season right now. And um, this is the time where, as we get later in the spring season, uh, they get sweeter, less dry on the outside, because the kumquat's an unusual fruit. You, the whole thing is an edible. Once you just wash it off like you do any other fruit, um, some chefs like to use just the peel. Mm-hmm. Some use, like to use the whole fruit. Uh, so, what, Jamie, what do you do with the kumquats? Okay, so I cut them in half and I take out any of the seeds that I can get to. And then I cooked them in a simple syrup. And they cook down. I mean, they... they they definitely infuse that syrup, but they cook down and sort of break down. Like think orange marmalade, but far more intense. Maybe I should call it a marmalade. It is the most delicious, sweet, tart flavor. And I love the texture of the peel. Hmm. It's really tender. It's nice and thin. You know, it's not that you have to remove the pith. Uh, like if you were to make an orange marmalade, I just, I think they're fabulous. And then I, I like, I have a very tart palate, so I like to just pop them in my mouth and eat them. And, and I've actually taught Jagger too as well. <laughs> so we're loving them. Absolutely loving them. Then, okay, completely opposite of that, Robert, um, Harry's Berries, which is like the king of strawberries, has this short season, but you want to talk about succulently sweet. Those are out of this world berries. Yes. And, you know, I think most people always assimilate springtime as the time where you're going to see strawberries more than not in your local store there. But this particular grower, Carrie's Berries, is located in Oxnard, California. They're one of the last organic strawberry growers for a commercial basis. Now, these strawberries are smaller than the ones you typically see in the store, but that's okay because 
they pack a punch. When you, they're not only bright red on the outside, and, and they vary in shape. They're more, they're more the size of a nickel than, you know, like a silver dollar like you would see a regular strawberry. Yeah, but they're that smaller. small strawberry is just delicious. Oh, and they are red, br- I mean, beautiful crimson red from end to end. Oh, they are so good. All right, I want to try to get to the entire season in this one conversation. So talk dragon fruit, if you would. White flesh, red flesh, yellow skin. Uh, Dragon fruit has become more and more, I don't want to say popular, because I know you've shared that it's popular around the world, but I think it's, uh, we're more aware of it, right? It's become uh, more available and much more beloved by chefs and food lovers alike for its beauty. Yes, extremely trendy tropical fruit. It's one of our best-selling tropical fruit. But hands down, without a doubt, the yellow-skinned ones, Mm. they're they're the only ones that have a white flesh on the inside, Definitely one of the sweetest tasting fruits you'll ever have. Yes. But the, 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 the thing about the dragon fruit is there's really mild ones, the white flesh pink ones, and then there's really sweet ones, which are the yellow skinned white flesh ones. Yes. And I love them all, but I'll tell you that white fleshed dragon fruit just with a spoon is like candy. I, I mean, absolutely delicious. And it has a refreshing, oh, just a a really mouth-watering sort of characteristic to it and really good for you, right? I mean, it has lots of antioxidant benefits, I understand. Oh, yes. Yes. Most definitely. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, the, the reddish one has a lot of anthocyanines. Mm. Uh, white flesh is actually uh, not so common in fruit. There's only a few fruit that are white flesh, like mangosteens, lychees, and rambutans. But they're full of not only hydrating uh, fuel, but antioxidants as well. Hmm. You are such a source of knowledge, Robert. I don't want to let you go because there's more to cover. So please stay with us. We'll take a quick break. Finding good local produce is a snap when it comes to Melissa's produce. You can, of course, become a produce expert yourself at melissas.com, but stay tuned because we are going to dig in to much more of Spring's Bounty right after this. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Don't go away. Welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. We are welcoming spring. Robert Schuler is here, our resident produce guru from Melissa's Produce. And we're talking the best of the season. Uh, Robert, are apricots on their way? I love stone fruit. You know that. And I know that apricots kick off the season come summer. We'll get our peach fix. Um, But a, a, a beautiful apricot cannot be beat. Like there's just something special about it. And I want to stuff it with um, a little bit of beautiful creamy goat cheese and drizzle it with truffle honey and put it out as a starter, like to welcome the season. Most definitely. The springtime, typically by May, 
the first showing of all the different tree fruits, when I say tree fruits, I mean peaches, nectarines, plums, apricots. Apricots are the first ones to show. And ironically, they also have a shorter season than your typical peach or nectarine or right. plum. So it's, it's exciting. We're right at the beginning, the cusp of the season of these golden jewels. You know, they are just, uh, you know they're ripe because they're not only fragrant, but they're soft to the touch there, Mm. and they're just so versatile Mm. and just an exciting part of what is to happen before we get into the summertime of all the different varieties of tree fruit. Yeah, definitely so. And I like to grill the apricots too, by the way, and put them on a a board with burrata cheese and a little bit of uh, baby arugula, maybe tossed in a vanilla vinaigrette. Um, But those apricots, the sweetness comes out when you grill them and you get a little smoky goodness. Oh, they're so good. Um, All right, break into the veggie side, if you would, please. And let's go veggie centric. Um, Rhubarb. Nothing says spring than uh, domestic season rhubarb. It's true. Typically, uh, the season starts actually out of Washington, goes, makes its way down to Oregon, and as we go into the summer months, then we're into California. So it's very much a West, uh, West Coast. Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of people think that the rhubarb is actually a fruit because it's used in so many different uh, desserts and pastry. Most most relevant to like rhubarb pie and uh People think that it's related to the celery, but it's not. It, it, is, it has a bright red stock to it, and cooking with it, it, it has a, imparts a very tart texture. And when you add something to it like strawberries, then you have something really special there. And uh, we have just got into the spring season of rhubarb, and it is uh, fabulous. It is, and I agree. And I think that it has come up in the world. I think it used to be... The vegetable that every, well, there was always the controversy, vegetable or fruit, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, I think it used to be like the short season, everyone said rhubarb and moved on. But now it's become almost trending where chefs are finding new, innovative ways to use rhubarb. And yes, we love a strawberry rhubarb pie. There there might be nothing better than that. Um, But there are amazing ways to cook rhubarb down and add texture and flavor to so many things. Uh, The last rhubarb that you sent me last year, I have to tell you, I was making rhubarb crisps with because I thought the texture and the flavor of it was fabulous. And yes, it it requires a good amount of sugar, right? Um, But there's Mm -hmm. lots of lovely things that you can add it to. Like if you're doing... um, like a sweet and sour chicken, right? Um, I like to add rhubarb even to the savory stuff. Um, And then make a rhubarb compote, um, make uh, a cobbler, of course, uh, make a fresh batch of scones or biscuits and use that rhubarb jam. Oh, I think rhubarb goes beautifully with coconut. I made coconut cream and complimented that rhubarb. And, and I thought it was fabulous, Robert. So I think yeah. that rhubarb's coming back. That's, that's yes, my I forecast. I think there is a resurgence because yeah. a lot of people are, you know, they're, 
it, it's one of those old school vegetables that people have almost forgot about. Yes. And now many of the, the chefs and bakers and stuff out there is bringing the rhubarb back. Yeah. You know, it is a vegetable. You have to cook it first, but it's so versatile, not only with sweets, but like you said, you can use it in savory dishes as well. Yeah, definitely so. Um, all right, talk mini cucumbers if you would, because I haven't bought a standard size traditional or European or burpless or seedless or whatever we call it today. I haven't bought one of those big cucumbers in a really long time. I think the mini cucumbers have the perfect balance of textural skin to interior juicy crunch. Of course, every small child, including mine, loves a mini cucumber. And because we know that the Middle Eastern salad fatouche is super hot right now, I'm making that like twice a week. That's like my go-to snack. So I'm mini cucumber addicted. Yeah, well, you know, the mini cucumber, uh, the common name also uh, for them is the Persian cucumber, but it was misunderstood under that name. Hmm. But this is the time where people start growing cucumbers in their own backyard there. There's so many different varieties. But my go-to, just like yours, is the mini cucumbers because you just wash them off and go. Okay, Robert, Mm -hmm. we have welcomed spring. Now we just have to wait for the bounty to arrive, right? I always love when you share your knowledge and passion. So thank you for being an essential part of this show for so many years. I hope you'll listen every week, of course, for so many reasons, but for the weekly Melissa's Produce Pick as well. So you're always sure what's fresh, what's in season. You can always find a link at chefjamie.com to go to melissas.com or just go direct melissas.com because you will find resourceful fruit and veggie information that will make you a culinary hero, no doubt. And thank you again, Robert. We hope to talk to you again soon. And so that brings us to the end of another hour of informative, entertaining, and delicious conversation. Well, at least I hope you thought so. I'll leave you with my last bite for the weekend, my last ounce or tidbit of gastronomic inspiration. I'm on a peanut butter kick lately. Maybe it's because I introduced my son to peanut butter and jelly and oh, it was a hit. So I have copious amounts of peanut butter in my pantry. And what am I making, you ask? Well, I I call them oh baby bars because I said that out loud in my kitchen to my two-year-old and he said, oh baby. Yes, they're chocolate peanut butter bars, four ingredient wonders, in fact. You need peanut butter and unsalted butter, powdered sugar and chocolate chips. And they are just the gooeyest, ooeyest, chewiest, most delicious, delectable, sweet treat concoction you've ever had. And I am gladly sharing the recipe on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram on my pages at Chef Jamie Gwen. So please check it out. I thank you for listening once again. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off, and I do hope you continue to eat well. Well.